If everybody was good at math, we wouldn't have some that were elite. If everyone had this kind of access, that would mean that some folks could brag about their kids being excluded from the regular group or being in a class that other folks don't have access to. So that's what the conversation comes down to. Our human instincts are, it's a zero sum game. That's our human instinct. So what we're doing right now is talking about policies and practices and systems that will curb our natural instincts to sort and select and to produce winners and losers. That's what our industry has been built on. And what we're talking about right now will provide that access to make sure everybody wins. And what I know, haven't done this for a long time, but everyone does it wrong. New tracks from Air Tindy Beats. Go check them out on SoundCloud. Air Tindy Beats. You might not guess from what you just heard that this episode is about virtual reality. But it is, partly. That excerpt was part of the conversation with Dr. Lavelle Brown, superintendent of Ithaca Schools in New York State. I'll let him introduce himself. Well, my name is Lavelle Brown, and I'm currently serving as the superintendent of schools in central New York, Ithaca City School District. And I've been doing uh, this work for about 25 years now. Nice to be with you all. He's joined by Anarupa Gangley. I'm Anarupa, the founder and CEO of Prisons. And I'm currently endeavoring to reinvent a new way of learning math, utilizing experiential learning and virtual reality. We're talking today about the bold risks that innovators in K-12 education choose to make toward the goal of educational equity. This time, a project from a company called Prisms VR, using the tech of virtual reality to make algebra the experience it should be for learners who, when engaging with it through the right context, might actually have good cause to consider themselves, quote, math people in a system that too often inadvertently fosters the math caste system of those who get it and those who don't. Prism's recent launch video puts it this way. We learned about slope and linear functions by physically experiencing the melting rate of a glacier feeling the decrease in glacial thickness over time in your body and abstracting up from that experience to create tables, graphs, and equations, all in an effort to help the city of Miami predict when their coastline will be at risk of flooding. And what if you had learned about exponential growth by witnessing a virus spread across a food hall and abstracting math models to support your community's hospitals? This is no such thing podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. What is what is, tell me about launch day. This is crazy that I'm getting to talk to you. Um, you know, first of all, I have to say because um, I just had this morning with my own team a highly relevant conversation to this one we're about to have around um, VR and education and I have a feeling we're going to cover all kinds of territory, but um, but one of one of my team said, you know, I hate those shows that um, invite people on and they just do commercials, uh, but they don't tell you they're doing a commercial. Um, first of all, I'll say this is not a commercial. Um, we are going to talk a little bit about product that you are launching today, but um, I haven't used it, so I can't endorse it. What I am uh, an endorser of is um, in our early conversations together, you and I believe a lot of the same things about where we are in this moment of um, in learning and technology and uh, culture and society. And, uh, and that's what we're here to talk about. But um, I, I, it's a great way to talk about what it is you are working on to hear about your launch day. What, what do you, uh, what's exciting you and uh, what has your nerves on edge? We're finally getting a chance to implement the pedagogies that we've always wanted to using educational technologies. I think for so long, I was always trying to fit a square peg in a round hole in that this is what I have, these are the tools I have, but they never quite allowed students to reason and sense make and experience mathematics the way that we all we all want to and the reasons why we got into teaching. So what's exciting for me today is, is less about our product or our company. And it's more about kids are finally going to be able to learn mathematics in the way that we learn through movement, through great problems, through tactile sense-making, through all these humane representations of thought that have been shut out 
from the modern math classroom for decades now and having told generations of children that they're not good at math. I think that's what's most exciting. I think the thing that scares me is that we are we are driving really fast because we believe that this tool needs to be in the hands of teachers and students. Um, and so for emerging technology like VR, that does require um, uh, a certain sensitivity around how it's implemented and the operations and logistics around a new hardware, all of that, you know, just increases entropy in the classroom. And so that's daunting, but I think that we're so committed to the pedagogy and we're so committed to how children ought to learn that we're going to figure out um, the logistics of the hardware. So yeah, a, a, a little bit of both, a little bit of fear and anxiety, but a tremendous amount of excitement for the districts and schools that are taking such a huge leap of faith and saying, no, we're done with having kids sitting down, looking at screens, looking at paper, looking at a teacher, and that's just on how we learn. How many How many districts um, and, and or schools, whatever's, whatever's the number worth sharing, but um, so how many young people are going to have access post-launch? So we're beginning with 9,000 students uh, across uh, 18 school districts in the U.S. They span uh, urban districts, suburban and rural districts across the country because we really wanted this to work in all schooling models and school communities. But we're going to rapidly be growing from there. You know, every month we'll be adding 10 to 15,000 students. And the reason why we're starting smaller is because of what I mentioned, the implementation apparatus, the structure and support for teachers that really needs to be very strong for something like this to work. And so we want to make sure that as we scale, we're also scaling the teacher and administrator support tools so that it's not a fad that is fun across, you know, 10 schools, but we don't have a vision for how this gets to every single public school. Mm-hmm. Lavelle, um, first of all, I'm I'm thrilled to have you here. And I first learned about your work through your book. Um, so, so you wrote A Culture of Love on Transformational Organizational Culture. Um, and you have made the rounds on some of the um, conferences and and places where people like you, people like you and I would intersect. Um, yeah. And um, I really specifically wanted to ask you about the role you feel technology plays in that culture. Right. So uh, we're coming through a. I don't even know what to call it, an iconic, uh, iconically crazy um, year and a half uh, behind us. Um, There's a pandemic, uh, but that is like one dimension of the reasons that transformational culture is relevant. Um, I wanted to ask you just specifically, because you probably don't get all that many venues to talk specifically about this piece of it uh, to just reflect a little bit on the role that technology plays. Sure. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. Uh, you're right. I don't get many opportunities to engage in this dialogue. And I must say to you first, Anrupa, um, I appreciate your anxieties around things not going well as you launch a new technology today. But please know um, I'm in the midst of my second day of school here as superintendent and the technologies that I thought were, you know, pretty much immersed in our school district, i.e. yellow buses, uh, <laughs> scheduling, <laughs> um, you know, water mains, things like that are going bonkers right now for me. So um, I'll, I'll be OK if you launch something as cool as your new tool. And there are a few bugs because things we've been using for decades aren't working well for us right now. Mm. Uh, but, but, but with that, um, yes. Uh, the, the book, A Culture of Love, and what I talk about as far as a transformational culture is grounded in some key principles that are interconnected and connected very closely and coupled closely with um, technology tools. We talk about a culture of love. We talk about some principles, some principles that we define in my book around patience, honesty, forgiveness, a commitment, caring, those key behaviors and principles that unfortunately aren't very common in our organizations are things that we know we need to develop with our young people and amongst our adults who are leading young people at this time. Because what we know is that these technology tools are ubiquitous. When we have, we're surrounded by one-to-one devices, awesome virtual reality tools. We're writing new codes each and every day. We're writing new codes each and every day that we hope do not include biases and blind spots. We hope allow for us to reflect in real ways about who we are as individuals, who we are as organizations. 
we hope that we're surrounded by tools and it's going to need us to understand what love is. We're developing and surrounded by technology tools that allow for us to engage in intellectual friction and conflict that is needed to eradicate the inequities that have plagued our organization for generations. Hope this makes sense because the culture of love is based on these hard conversations that push us to reflect, to engage in friction, to remove barriers, and then ultimately to put in place policies that will be sustainable, that will guide us to a new and better approach to engaging with one another. Technology is at the core of that. <laughs> Technology is allowing for us to engage in those dialogues with folks who are different than us. Technology is allowing for us to engage in those dialogues in a way where we can scale it. The number of conversations I've been able to have over the last 19 months using this virtual platform has <laughs> been amazing. Whereas before, getting on a plane and taking four days off of work to get to one event to talk mm -hmm. to 600, four or 500 people, now I'm able to talk to thousands all within a matter of a couple of hours using a virtual technology mm -hmm. tool. So I hope, I hope it makes sense. They're interconnected, and I think us be able to scale this approach to organizational change more so now with tools like the one Anna Rupa is describing to us today. Um, I want to savor some of those uh, patience, honesty, forgiveness, caring. Um, you said a lot of really important things. I hope that people will will read the book and uh, get get all of the context for the message that you're bringing to the field. Um, it is it is so important. Do you think it's a bridge too far to say? that in addition to the intellectual friction and conflict that you just described with, um, with our, our colleagues and our institutions, does it carry over to the way we interact as um, educators and learners with the skills and competencies that um, are so important? So, so let me ask it in a different way. Um, do you think that that friction also lies in the kind of statements you often hear from adults like, I'm not a math person, <laughs> right? So does it require that intellectual friction and conflict to introduce tools um, like the one we're talking about today into these settings and help? Um, all of us see some of these content areas in in ways that um, might cause friction with the way that either we've taught it in the past or we've learned it in the past or um, it's sort of come up in our fields uh, historically. I will say that the mindset and the skill set connected to mathematics in the past has been intended and been designed very specifically to sort and select and to produce inequities. Whereas the tool that Rupert's launching, this approach to love, uh, computational thinking, that's the differentiator. That's what every one of our young people can and should be doing each and every day. Before, you know, it, it was by design that we um, had classes that relied on exercises that did not allow for us to develop a sense, a tactile sense making. <laughs> what what we're talking about right now is what every one of our young people can and should be doing, but they were not provided that opportunity purposely so that we could sort and select and to exclude young people from the highest level STEM courses or the elite universities. So I know I'm probably saying a lot more here right now, but from my perspective, as someone who's had a lived experiences, a lived experience and folks expecting me not to be good at math, not even giving me opportunities and access to the best that we can offer young people when it comes to mathematics purposely so that they would not see me in those spaces. So, yeah, that's the friction. And it's going to require us to really commit to being equitable in our approaches of teaching and learning to truly embrace what Anna Rupa is bringing to the table, because that's here for everyone. It's really compelling what you just shared, Lavelle. And I think one of the things that makes me think about is intellectual friction on questions around equity or social inadequacies that, that we're all kind of communally fighting. They've often been localized to the ELA classroom, to the history classroom, to just what we traditionally think of as the humanities or economics. I think my contention is that how can you have those conversations from purely subjective and emotional places those conversations should actually be happening in the math classroom, right? And so to me, talking about, so our, what our, you know, our first few modules were on the global pandemic, or is on um, glaciers melting and when Miami, you know, faces a flood risk, because 
we often talk about these these uh, ideas in the context of public policy and not mathematics. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of what you're also the what my response immediate response was, how can you have intellectual friction when you've limited the objectives of what we're supposed to be doing in that class in the first place? Mm. Um, people can't bring what they feel and think about these issues in the math classroom because the math student's role, exactly as you delineated, is to memorize, reproduce. And so we're, there are a few things that are happening. We have to first like change the role of a student. We have to kind of move away from this idea that uh, discourse and argumentation is only for ELA, for claims, events, you know, evidence, reasoning, and that that's actually the role in mathematics and science and engineering. And the more that we raise technologists and creators of technology with what you just shared, um, we're going to get far more meaningful and equitable technology. Mm. So just wanted to, I know that Mark, you probably have another question, but I wanted to share, I love that notion of intellectual friction. And I think that it's a big part of what we do, but you can't get that until you reframe the why, why a kid is in the, in the room, um, in the traditional math classroom, the types of problems they study through the lens of mathematics and how they share their thinking and the diverse modalities you allow someone to share their thought. Because you and I love the, the spoken word and the written text. A lot of people, highly creative people, don't share their thinking in that way. So in a discourse setting, they're quiet. Whereas if you allow them 3D writing tools and simulations and code and all these other modalities, you're going to get much, much more diverse representations of thought and contribution. There's so much to this conversation. And Anarupa, to your point, yeah, I'm nothing but questions this this uh, morning. So back to you, Anarupa. So as a way of describing how the VR experience works that we've talked a little bit about, can you narrate a little bit of a student's experience as they would take part in it? Let's start with the one that's probably that's been, just been on everybody's minds over the past 18 months as, as, as you talk about the schema we're all bringing into this academic year. Uh, the first module we built was on the global pandemic. Um, I chose that topic because I wanted a way for students to not feel like that they were passively watching this, you know, this, this scenario around them transpire, but they could actively contribute and find solutions um, to what was happening in their communities. So in, in this first module, there are two parts. Uh, part one is where the student experiences the context. And what we mean by that is they put the headset on and they're transported to a food court, a food hall that you would see in, in you know, in New York, in Nashville, in Istanbul. You know, mm-hmm. we, we try to make it as accessible as possible in terms of um, the, you know, what these environments look look and feel like. And when they're in that um, that food hall, there's mayor's announcement, then there's a lockdown. So everything is story driven. And they 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 realize, oh my goodness, we're in the, in the midst of a, an outbreak. And then they get a magical power and they're able to go back in time and see those exact behaviors that they engaged in without a mask or socially distancing. They get to see how the virus spread and they got to see what felt like very innocuous. The cashier speaking to the man asking for the salad, there was transmission. When he grabbed his girlfriend's hand, there was transmission. When she walked over to that back group from this front group, another four people were exposed. So within minutes, a child is able to see this is what the New York Times is talking about. It's no longer just this abstraction of these words or these math models. I just saw how I spread the virus to five people. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of very everyday relatable things like being in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a food festival or food hall. Uh, and then all of the modules are mission driven. So students accept their mission. How many weeks until the hospitals in your community are going to reach capacity? And what's important about that topic is it's not political because that's not the purpose of these modules. It's not for mm. people to get screaming matches about their ideology. Hospitals around the country, irrespective of geography, have had a resource issue as we've been we've not been able to contain the numbers. That's something everybody can agree on. And so we really focus on things that we can agree on and we kind of move and grow our thinking from there to find more commonality versus distinctions. And so uh, from that from that point, students are able to connect that visceral physical understanding of multiplicative growth to a simulation so that this human beings went from having eyes, hair, clothes to being little sprites in a city simulation. 
They then connect that to sprites and a data visualization that are tactile. So you can kind of move, annotate, and perturb the data visualization where you begin to see the exponential growth function. We then help them connect that to a 2D graph. So now the people went from people to dots, but we can't forget that those were people. That's a very, very important part of mathematics. We abstract everything and forget, you know, why we're even mm. doing it. And then we connect the, the points in the table and the graph to an equation. Hmm. And, you know, we tested with a lot of different types of, of students with different backgrounds and life experiences. We tested in New York and Boston, Lee County in Florida, KIPP. Um, and what we found were 100% of kids at the end of that experience were able to say with a level of sincerity of that equation, Ms. Gongoli, Y is equal to 5 to the X. I know exactly where that 5 came from. I spread it to five people. It's their equation. It's not this black box that someone showed them. And they're able to know why, why, why is X in the exponent? Well, I saw that repeated multiplication over and over again. I saw it in the 3D simulation. I saw it in the food hall. So all of these things that students just take for granted, they're not getting a chance to kind of experience in a multitude of ways. And what's important is at the end of it, they did something worthwhile. They got to, they got to figure out when, um, at what point, at what, at what week they're going to be resource constrained. And at the end of it, it wasn't a public service announcement, like everybody wear masks, you know, you can deduce what you will from it. Um, but what was important is that they were able to see this, this really interesting problem. How would I have broken, broken it down to solve, to solve it? And every kid was like, I now know how to take something I'm seeing in the papers and the news and break it down to solve it. And I think that is, that's, that's a, like a critical part of the VR is the breaking down of problems into pieces that feel easy, easier to solve um, and takes away that kind of um, those, those, those barriers and, and motivation mindset that I don't know, even know how to attack this problem. Can, can you say a tiny bit more before I, I have a question for Lavelle, uh, uh, say a tiny bit more about the choice of VR as opposed to augmented reality or even a two, because some of what you're describing actually reminds me, you know, so there's a, there's a whole category out there of um, that for at least, I would say a couple decades now um, have had a really important, small, but very important role in education, which is serious games, right? So uh, games with, with social purpose that, um, and, and I can think of a few, um, one that I'm thinking of, and I'll link to it in the show notes, was called Stop Disasters um, from, I might be over a decade old now, but Stop Disasters was like a, a great um, a great simulation that just helped me sort of understand the, um, the cause and effect of some of the decisions at a policy level that one is making around. So, so um, anyway, not to get too far down the rabbit hole of Stop Disasters, but um, why is the VR piece of this important. Um, and, and I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about, um, why is that? Cause you are not coming at this from, uh, as a technologist, um, uh, originally you're coming at this as somebody who has worked in the field of education for a long time. Why does VR, what is the gap that VR specifically fills? It's a great question. And I'm going to answer it really not from my perspective, but what I saw in students, because I myself have kept a very open mind of modality. It could very well be that the pedagogy that we're really trying to get at can be scaled using AR or WebXR or another uh, medium. But what I've, I found a few things um, that has really kept me on the VR train. One of them is we, we can't um, underestimate the power of suspending disbelief. So when a student feels like they're not watching a simulation, that they are the simulation, that it's in their body, it's not on a screen. I think that I had underestimated the power of the eye and the agency because you are the one controlling the environment around you. You're not controlling a screen in front of you. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's just one thing to, to say out of the gates. The second part of it is a lot of um, our design is predicated on embodied cognition. So this the idea that organized movements and uh, the kinesthetic activities that that you know we use are actually highly correlated to, to cognition, and so we've only begun to scratch the surface. But our kids move a lot while they're working, and they love it. That keeps them going. Uh, I'm not going to quote a particular uh, share the name, but we had a, we had a, a great group of students in New York who tested, 
And one of their teachers later on told me, I've never seen that student who, in, it, this particular student had an individualized education plan. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for him to focus on a math problem for more than five minutes at a time. And he would just give up. Uh, and he went on for 45 minutes. You're not even supposed to be in VR for 45 minutes. So we're like telling him to get out. And he just kept going. And this, this, this educator was, as you'd expect, extremely emotional. And we, I sat down with her afterwards and I was like, what did you notice the student doing that he doesn't typically get to go to get to do? And she says he was moving the whole time Mm. and he wasn't just randomly moving. He was moving the interactives. He was, he, he kept, you know, that tactile engagement with this, in this case, it was a data visualization when he didn't understand it, he kept going back to it. He annotated, he moved it. And that was a big part of it. And that's very hard to do with, with, with other media. Um, and then the, the the last part of it, I would say, is really um, one of the core things that we're developing is the ability to abstract, which is a which is a root, you know, of of most post secondary uh, STEM majors. You have to understand how to abstract. And the problem with anything two D is it's already abstracted for you. It's two D. But we live in a three D world, and what the kids don't know is how do I go from my th- multi dimensional life to the two D in the first place. So that connection with the 3D context to the 2D is a really important part of design and pedagogy, which is quite hard to do using other media that's not immersive VR. I think re- reducing abstraction is is a uh, it's interesting to think about the role that that plays in um, sort of hidden ways in all kinds of areas of um, the way we do sort of subject driven learning currently um so i'm still kind of thinking about that that uh that idea the um lavelle i wanted to ask you to be clear about what's happening in ithaca schools with the system tell us just about you know how did you get introduced to this um where does the relationship between you and and uh prisms develop um, and then I have some questions for you about uh, ad- adopting or piloting technology like this. Well, you know, I, I'm in my 11th year in Ithaca, New York, and uh, with that kind of a tenure for a superintendent, um, we can tend to be innovative. Uh, we can take some chances. We have some credibility. And fortunately, I've been able to engage in dialogues in communities all over the country. So. For some reason, people find me and I find them. The best people in the business seem to tend to gravitate towards one another. And that's what happened with me and Anna Rupa in this particular tool. Um, smart people knew that we were having similar conversations that connected us. And there is synergy. And my folks, uh, you know, it's rare that we bring in something new from outside. We tend to build our own things internally at this point. But this was one of those tools and one of those um, initiatives that we are excited about partnering with someone to do because we see this as helping us to evolve some already pretty innovative work here. So, so tell me about this will not be, um, you know, you've, you've brought technologies into districts. Um, what, what do you think is the greatest pain point for um, districts uh, or even at the school level working to adopt technology like this? So I will say we have, we have all the right kids. If we would just uh, get the adults out of the way, this would take off tomorrow. Um, and I'll, and I, you know, I am an educator, and I know how my biases and my right to comfort and my fear of open conflict and all the things that all those characteristics that have dominated our school culture, um, how they stand in the way when it comes to adult behaviors. This is what our young people are begging for. This will push educators to get out of their comfort zone. This will push educators to question what we've previously done and what we will do tomorrow as far as our pedagogies and our practices and the content that we typically put in front of young people each and every year. So this tool will push the adults in ways that I know will come up against the existing culture, which is to be slow and incremental in our shifts to, you know, take very few chances because we're risk risk averse and conflict averse. So, yeah, the pain point are the adult conversations that I know are going to take place when looking at doing this at scale. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have a core group of people who will do this tomorrow and be all in. But to do this at scale for every educator and for every teacher, that's where we're going to run into uh, the existing culture, which does not embrace something quite this um, bold. Mm -hmm. And Laval, can I can I add to your thinking there? 
I couldn't agree with you more about the culture of early adopters that drive innovation, that kind of help us see what's possible. But then we run into this institutional glue of scale, right? You know what really worked? We're, we're, we're at the beginning of our journey. So, so, so take it for what it is. But you know what was fascinating in some of the schools that we tried? We did what you said. We started with one to two teachers. And what happened were kids were galloping out of Algebra 1 class <laughs> saying, I love algebra. And you know, the, 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 the teachers next door, you couldn't ignore that. You can ignore the superintendent. Sorry. I mean, not, not like a, <laughs> not, like a not in the real way, but in an existential way. Right. You can ignore, you can definitely ignore the company, me. Uh, but it's really hard to ignore the children. And so that was, it, it was our strategy of, and, and all those schools that had one to two teachers, they're now full school adoptions this year. So NSF phase one, we started with one to two teachers and it moved to a whole school within the next academic year. And the only reason that happened was because the kids were like, I love math class, said no child ever. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, 5% of us who, who, who kind of were able to learn despite the system, in spite of the system, instead of because of the system. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of hear more about that of, of initiatives that you found where the adults didn't have a choice because students were learning at rates that they'd never learned before. And most importantly, they were engaged in a meaningful way where they were advocating for it because it's very, very hard to turn away from kids who are protesting and advocating for themselves. And I think that's the next wave of ed tech is how do we get our digital natives to begin to really advocate for what drives their own learning and how do we rile them up, not in a political way, not in a, they don't have to advocate for prisms, whatever you need you know, begin to really to, to, to be vocal about it, you mm-hmm. know? And, and I will say the only initiative and content that has inspired young people in that kind of way that I've been a part of in my career has been when we're talking about social justice issues in our classrooms, race, class, ableism, sexism. Our young people are begging for our educators to engage them in dialogues about that. And that's, you know, that that can and should in, in include some technology tools, but where I've seen it, up to date, it has not. Mm. And I can't imagine what would happen next if we can then in, influence those conversations using technologies, emerging technologies. Couple those two, and we're going to have fire. Lavelle, have you? I'm going to put you on the spot and ask: Have you put the headset on? Are you uh, like, wh- oh, yeah. wh- what's your own experience with VR? It blew my mind, man. So I have, I now have two Oculus sets in my house um, because my kids um, are all into the virtual reality tools. And but yeah, I've, I had a chance to play with the tool and the group was placing in our schools as well. And it blew my mind. Like I wish I had this 25 years ago. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, probably a little bit longer than that, but that's good enough. But I wish I'd had it as a student. Yeah. I would be running around. I probably would not be a superintendent. Yeah. I probably would be in a STEM field. I would be doing something different. Yep. And that's, you know, fortunate and unfortunate to know that access and opportunities were shut off for me because of the tools that I didn't have access to. Yep. Yeah, I, it, I I love that you 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 said that. And that's the biggest thing that we found is um, I feel like I'm doing a, I'm playing a little bit of a cloak and dagger here because every single one of our modules um, exposes kids to a vocation that they typically don't learn about. So in linear functions, you step in the role of a climate scientist, a glaciologist. Um, in pandemic, you step in the role of an epidemiologist. And so you begin to learn about all these different ways that mathematics is utilized. Um, and I've been very categorical to cover our economy. So eco-friendly, sustainable design, architecture, smart cities, um, tech that the U.S. is going to be investing in the next 30 years. I mean, kids have to be really future-minded, leaving uh, K-12, because the court, what they choose to study ostensibly in university is going to meaningfully, it's going to be what they work on to so their 20s and maybe their 30s as well. Mm-hmm. And they're really helping them make those informed choices about what they're passionate about, passionate about is important. And the reason that that thinking was sparked in your response was one of our young women who tested, um, she's at, she's at KIPP in Massachusetts. You know, she wasn't the best, she wasn't a, a high performing math student. Um, she had left the STEM track. She felt like she wasn't a math person and she did one of the modules. And right after that, she signed up for girls who code this summer. She had wanted to be a teacher before, which is a great profession because I was a teacher. Uh, but she now wants to be an engineer and she has moved over. Uh, she's now on the STEM track this year. And it was crazy to me that this young woman, all she needed was a little bit of exposure and a little bit of space to sense make on her own without that social pressure of like, you're not good at this. You don't know how to do this because it turned out she was an, a highly kinesthetic learner and she killed it. She was one of our highest performers. And so 
um, I think that that um, exposure to different fields is huge. And being able to do that in core math, science, ELA history versus it be this enrichment after school opt in, mm. blah, 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 internship. Like I'm all about, you know, I, I believe in vocational training. But until and unless we can get it into the meat and potatoes of our curriculum, we're going to have a serious access issue. I think we solved all this with the wiggles, didn't we? Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of one of the scenes that I have, I'm I'm joking, obviously. Uh, one of the scenes that cracks me up every time I close my eyes and think about it from this last year is I I have three kids of my own, and um, they were learning in behind me in. Uh, our dining room and and every so often I would hear the pounding on the wood floors. I live in an old house and the whole house would shake um, and I knew somebody was in on either like a wiggles break or doing a, their phys ed, their virtual phys ed, but literally planted in front of the screen running in place. Um, and this was like in some cases for especially for my uh, seven now seven year old today. Um, she uh this was like the movement she would get for a two hour period um you know it'd be maybe seven or eight minutes of running in place on um in front of the screen so i think we under all of that to say i think i think we have just so greatly underestimated um the effects of seat time not um not the way we often refer to seat time as being problematic, but the the very physical um, aspect of seat time and what it means to be seated when you're seven or four or 12 um, and what that does to the way that we process uh, and, and create mental models for what's going on around us. Um, Lavelle, I, I wanted to ask you about a little bit more about integrating this technology and and I wanted to maybe both of you will have an opportunity to chime in a little bit but um there's a cost for doing this right and I remember maybe two I think it was a little over two maybe three years ago um there was like the big news was like Oculus was bringing the headsets to a price point that was going to you know like every every kid in America was going to have a headset um which we know to to not be the case um so this isn't a, uh, a a sort of knock on the degree to which the you know industry has sort of helped make access um, real, but but rather just sort of a check in with you both, who no doubt have been very in tune with this question in the last you know year years. Um, where are we at this moment, given that that you've looked at this very recently, and no doubt, Anarupa, I want to throwback to something you said a, a little bit ago, you mentioned the NSF, which we're talking about the National Science Foundation, which I always make a point to mention um, is a a major um, investor and uh, trigger for the innovation that's happening in this context. And part of why I feel um, I've had my own work funded by the NSF in different contexts. And uh, part of the reason I think it's so important to mention them is that uh, from administration to administration, we are always, as citizens, uh, it's important for us to advocate for agencies that are helping us move this field along. Um, but I wanted to do a check-in on um, accessibility for the tech. Where where are we in this moment around how real it is for, say, um, you know, you mentioned doing some tests in New York. Um, how realistic is it for schools to acquire headsets um, and the hardware they need to be able to run um, data-intensive 3D uh, systems you know what does what does that look like in this moment, and and what's what's the um, how how real is it for us to to uh, think of this not as like a Jetsons flying car, but as something that really is right around the corner? My thinking right here doesn't make me very popular with my colleagues. Um, <laughs> this is not a finances. Um, we're in charge of multi-million dollar budgets. Um, we spend more on textbooks cleaning supplies and professional development and things I'm thinking about right now, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of, millions of dollars on each and every year. Um, 
when we wish to do something, we do it. And when you hear folks saying we have to find the funding or we're struggling to find the money for this, that is their hesitancy about being bold and doing something right. If we know something's going to benefit kids in this kind of way, it's going to provide access and opportunity for those who have not had it before. And we know that it's going to be effective for all of our young people. We do it when we want to. <laughs> and so there are a lot of things that get in the way of us providing these kind of support for young people, but it's not the finances. And typically it's about a mindset. Typically it's about um, uh, cultural, cultural behaviors of the adults and not about the money. So I don't know, maybe that's for you, uh, Anna Rupa, it's never really about the money um, from my perspective as a person who's been managing budgets for over two decades. I don't, Lavelle, I, I can't even imagine superintendents giving me that answer. So, so <laughs> it is a breath of fresh air and uh, a relief to hear you answer it that way. Anna Rupa, go ahead. I 100% concur with you. When I was a director of math in Boston, I had so much money. And I'm, I'm, I'm fine with saying it uh, openly. We spent that money in ways that we don't even remember. I couldn't tell you where it went. I know we spent it. And so this narrative that we don't have money, we don't have money, it, it's, it, it really takes a conversation away from what we should be talking about, which is prioritization and being very goals driven by goals and, and, and having plans that get us to our goals. It's a cart of headsets. These are Android devices. It takes all of 20 seconds to connect to the Wi-Fi. Um, it's no different from any other hardware that you, you would bring into your classroom. And then once it's connected, it's connected, it automatically updates. Um, you know, we, we provide charging stations. I think what's, what's important to remember is that at least I can, I can make I statements. I got into this field by looking at the inflection point in the market. The technology, as you mentioned, the price points are here. The software techniques are there. The hardware is really comfortable. Gone are the days where you're nauseated in VR. And so now we can finally align our really audacious business goals and academic and impact goals to, you know, like we, what we've been talking about, the way that we believe kids should learn. So I've, 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 I've been deploying headsets to schools over the past couple of weeks. We have thousands of devices arriving. And yes, is there, do they need to do some connection? Do they have to unbox them? Sure. But I haven't had any district leader say this has been any different from anything else we've done. Mm. And I think what's happened is we, we've become very fearful, kind of, it, it's, it, it's a tenor I started the podcast with where Lavelle, you were so kind and you said, our but, bu you know, busing and things that we've been doing for decades still have holes. So go, you know, be bold, be courageous because, you know, bugs here and there should not preclude us from really being courageous with new pedagogically effective tools. And the last thing I'll say here is the third wave of ed tech is pedagogy. And getting that right is going to take iteration. It's going to take a lot of testing with students and teachers. So I think we can't be scared of putting things that are not fully baked yet in the hands of our teachers and students, because they're the ones who are going to be able to most quickly co-design and get this thing right. Um, and so those, those are just kind of some of the top things that, that come to mind is it's not as hard as we think. They're Android devices. They're easy. They're mobile. We show you how to charge them. We show you how to store them. Uh, and, you know, I think that we're going to have to make a few mistakes together to quickly learn how we modulate this medium for, for, for the best efficacy and efficiency for student learning. If I was if I was funding you, if I, let's say I was from uh, the NSF and I and I as we often do pitch a program officer at the NSF and they said like, what's the, give me an approximate per pupil cost on something like this. Um, what's that number? So the recurring cost is $10 per student per year. Um, and there's a one-time hardware cost for it's a, it's a 10 to one um, device to, uh, student to device ratio right now. And um, it's a one-time cost for a site of 20 K for a card of headsets that'll last you um, you know, at least three to four years. Lubell, so what's, what's the, what's the list of things that, so 20, this is one school, right? 20 plus 10 per student. What's the list of things under budget right now that people don't even realize we're spending money on? That's okay. We, we, we can start with hand sanitizers. How about that? <laughs> the things that have dominated the last six months in, in K-12, not how to use VR, not how to increase and improve our pedagogies, hand sanitizers, face masks, and uh, cleaning supplies. Let's just start there. Yeah. It was exponentially outpaced what we're talking about right now, which we know will positively impact our young people. Yeah. 
why why is it harder for us to value young people i still have a chip on my shoulder that i i was told i was actually told i wasn't a math i wasn't good at math that i wasn't a math person um and algebra was a huge barrier for me as a as a young as an adolescent kid um like why do you think it, it's so hard for us to place a higher value on young people moving forward in the world with a grasp of um, these concepts that can help them change our world um, versus these these uh, things they don't mind spending millions of dollars on? Let me, let me be clear, and I've been intimating this for the last 45 minutes or so. Um, if everybody was good at math, we wouldn't have some that were elite. If everyone had this kind of access, that would mean that some folks could brag about their kids being excluded from the regular group Mm -hmm. or being in a class that other folks don't have access to. So that's what the conversation comes down to. Our human instincts are, it's a zero sum game. That's our human instinct. So what we're doing right now is talking about policies and practices and systems that will curb our natural instincts to sort and select and to produce winners and losers. That's what our industry has been built on. And what we're talking about right now will provide that access to make sure everybody wins and what I know, haven't done this for a long time, but not every, everyone doesn't want that. Mm. I don't know that. I don't know that there's any, any, any better answer than that. Um, I do want to come back to Anarupa. You were saying something earlier about some of the testing you all had done. So there's a there's a big release um, today and for this fall. Um, the technology scales to a new level, and um, new adoptions are happening. New software is happening. It sounds like. Um, but in, you've done a lot of testing to this point, and I wonder, in addition to um, something you said a minute ago, I'll clarify. You said, gone are the days when uh, people were, were getting nauseous around VR, and we were talking about it in the context of the cost, which um, I don't think people realize, you know, just to make the distinction, there's also this issue that you were talking about, which is actually people putting on VR headsets, and it really um, triggered for a lot of people who get motion sick this this reaction to motion sickness. So, um, uh, so that has gotten better. Um, but in addition to <laughs> in addition to that realization, right? You put the headset on some kids, and and there's a there are things that it does to the body that might be different. You also talked about. Um, things you've learned from kids who might be uh, need something different in terms of bodily kinesthetic kind of learning. What else are we learning about learners who have tested with the software? Um, you know, and that can in, in whatever dimension it seems relevant. Yeah, the, the there there's so many. So uh, stop me where you where you feel like it's 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 not interesting anymore. But um, the first thing that comes to mind of like my biggest learning was how teacher feedback is efficiently delivered. So the nice thing about our model is that students are in this multimodal tactile environment. So teachers are getting a lot of information. They're not getting kids put in A or B or they put in five or they put in Y. That's not the information they're getting. They're getting students first put a linear function in well, function which is wrong. They then went back and used the 3D graph and then came back and changed the slope because they realized there's a higher rate of change, but didn't realize that it should be an exponential. Then they went back and they did this. You're getting a full sense-making journey. Teachers can station instead of running around like a crazy person, which is what I had to do as a teacher, to see their papers, ask questions. That's impossible. Mm -hmm. Teachers had an impossible job, and then we made them feel bad about not doing it, right? So, and I'm telling you, I'm a pretty competent person. You can go look me up. And it was very, very difficult to, to be a, to be a teacher and really take in all the student feedback, give them incisive feedback to move them forward and do that for all the kids that needed that. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the greatest thing I learned during testing is, is it's really eased the teacher role because kids have a watch in VR and a teacher can immediately see, okay, a student Pete put in this, okay, he really needs to grab his 3D writing tool and go to his table and go back and understand the rate of change between rows two and three. She fires that message off, read receipt, Kid puts it away and a teacher can immediately see, did he grab the 3D writing tool? Did he go back to the interactive graph? Okay, if he wants to go back to the graph, I'll let him do that. I'm going to go see what Madline is doing. So it's greatly streamlined the feedback process to be manageable while using the right data versus right and wrong answers, which is never telling. You're just making conjectures about what could have caused that. 
And the second thing that I that that we've really learned is the power of multimodal associations. So going back to our linear functions module, um, fractional slope is is hard. Kids often just end up memorizing it because they can't make sense of what it is. And so in this case, uh, the glacier is melting four meters every five years, uh, which means that you have a negative four over five slope. And so we have, we have an interactive graph where students can actually kind of move the point along and see and you hear and feel the negative four over five. So you get the boom, 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 the haptics, and then you see the five ticks and we have color and audio visual and the, the, the feel. And so kids came out of there being like, I was able to feel and build a whole new association with mathematical structure, which was very visceral. Like I remember, I know exactly what negative four over five is in this very, very different way. Hmm. So what we really begin to learn more about is associations with math structures that, that utilizes other modalities in a very efficient way versus taking four weeks for students to learn slope and then reteach it eight times because that's what we currently do. Um, I want to come back to something you, something you said, Anarupa, but but before I do, Lavelle, I want to talk about training teachers to, right, so Anarupa, you, you um, mentioned that you have been a teacher, um, so you know the enormous investment that the, as a as a country, as a field globally, we put into uh, PD and um, and continuing education units for teachers and all of all of this. Um, you know, I wanted to just ask you, Lavelle. One was this vastly different than training teachers to do um, other things you're having them do a new a new reading uh, system or uh, some other technology. Um, and two, I'm really curious what you see in the educators who you've chosen, who, who have sort of either opted in or you've chosen to be part of this program. What, what's their response to being involved with this? Well, we haven't begun our PD efforts on this particular tool yet. We have some folks who are opting in already. And what I've learned in the past with tools like this that can be, that have been proven to be this effective, um, the, it's, it's, it's true engagement. And it's not as if my team, I need to ask folks to do this or require them to do it or mandate it. They just do it. When you're truly engaged and when you love young people in a real way and you see something like this come along, you're working on this on the weekend. So <laughs> the true PD is when you, mm. you don't have to mandate or even require folks to do it. They're doing it because they know it will make an impact the next day on young people's deaths. Yeah. What has been the reaction from teachers who have had some PD uh, both in relation to the content they're teaching, but also just generally, are there are there stories you love about um, what it means for educators to level up themselves in yeah. the tools they can put into practice? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that you asked that. I do think the teaching force usually they just get a lot of um, they pick up a lot of negative press, and I think that uh, one of the things that I always felt in my in my heart of heart is that when a teacher is given a truly fantastic tool, I've very rarely seen a teacher look away, whether they're your union rep or whether they're your young teacher, whether they've been teaching for you know 30 years, whether they've been teaching for five. And I really, really, I see this with a lot of sincerity. I've seen this. I've, I've worked in New York City and Boston. I've worked in the largest system in the country. And the reason, more often than not, the reason why teachers are pushing back is because they've, they've either discerned that the support system is not going to be sufficient to take them from where they currently are to the vision and the implementation model. So they don't feel like they can do it. And what, do, what are you going to do? You're going to get defensive. You're going to, if you don't feel like you can deliver something, you're either going to resist it or, or you're going to try to make that thing not happen um, or you're going to like be upset about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so the reaction that we've gotten in PD is like, we know exactly how to integrate it. We know exactly where to put it. Your lesson plans are so clear. There's no ambiguity around implementation. And you've taken us through exactly what happens when you put the headset on, how to use the dashboard. So when you train teachers with, with to how to use an emerging technology in a really meaningful, concerted and consistent way, we don't do a one and done PD and we're gone, right? We do the summer sessions and then we stay with them throughout the academic year because systems change doesn't come from four PDs. 
it comes from that constant coaching and them having an, a channel to share their questions every time questions come up because they're changing practice. They're not just implementing a tool. They're changing how they eat, breathe, and live in their classroom. Um, so I just wanted to really kind of throw this out maybe as like a love for the teachers that are joining for PRISMS. They are not, not every teacher is a master teacher. Um, these are teachers who really care about their kids and, and want to teach in a, in a more inclusive way. Um, and their response was, this is the way that I've always wanted to teach this is why I got into teaching. So you've spoken to that spirit inside of me, mm. but you, you didn't leave it there. You gave me a very clear roadmap and everyone always says, like, you can tell this has been built by great teachers. That's, that's a, that's a, a comment we get in PD all the time. Um, and so we've, we've given them the path and we don't say figure out a way to jump to that pebble. We put it down because again, teachers are tired and they're busy and expecting at scale for them to spend their evenings and weekends, you're going to get your rock stars to do it. You're not going to get scale by that being the expectation. I'd, I'd like to um, uh, I'd like to add an exponent to the amount of time we have, but um, but I can't. And um, you're I'm going to put uh, links to Prisms. I'm going to put uh, your social media links in the show notes. Um, what I would love to do uh, before we get going is Anarupa, is there anything you would like to plug that, uh, you know, encourage folks to, to check out or, or get into whether it's about prisms or just about opening, opening their thinking and, and lens, uh, to their practice as they slide into a school year that is going to be another landmark in how it is, um, different and so, so, fast evolving for their practice. What do you want to put out there uh, to, to plug and put in front of teachers right now? Yeah, I think um, I, I was at ASU GSV a couple of weeks ago and a leader I respect made a comment that kind of stayed with me on the plane. And, and when I landed back home, he said, in five, my biggest fear, he's been in education for a while. He said, my biggest fear is that in five years, we would have spent the $190 billion that schools got, you know, that we'll get over the next 24 months um, and student outcomes wouldn't have moved even a percent in, in a single discipline across this country. And the reason that stayed with me is like, it re like we all know it, we've done it. We've, we've spent the dollars we've, you know, and, and nothing really moved in our systems. And so my plug, if you will, um, is really about our kids are coming back after a time where the entire system is fatigued in, in, in existential ways, in real ways. Let's not put our kids who are 12 to 14 weeks behind in math back on a computer software, staring at a screen, doing drill and kill problems. Let's not let's diverge from our past. We finally have the we have real capital to do it. We have political will more than ever. Parents and leaders are willing to take risks. We cannot lose this opportunity to take those risks to find a better way. Because what our instinct is going to be is to be afraid and say, I got to quickly catch the kids up in algebra. We know we'll quickly get those test scores by having them do that question four times. And then, you know, mm. you know what, what uh, drill and kill methods. That's going to be the easy way. But what I want to share with districts and, and educators is we have money. We have a lot of different innovative thinkers and leaders who have emerged with, with better ways to engage our students. Lean into those. Prisms is just one of them. And I really like, I'm here as an educator today. Go check out Prisms. I hope you will. But more than anything else, take those risks right now because we're not going to have the same sort of climate funding wise in three years. Three years, a lot of the money is going to be gone. So even if you want to kind of uh, get an aspirational product, you might, we might not find the support for it. So that's the one thing I would just leave um, whomever is, is listening and, and, and with us today. Lavelle, I wanted to give you the last word and uh, you spoke today and you speak in your book about boldness and patience and honesty and forgiveness are things that came up in in the at the top of this episode what do you want to leave folks in this field with as someone who is clearly taking advantage of um, your your place as a leader in this field and as a district lead to leverage the time in and and the veteran status that you have to do things that are innovative, especially with the year 
ahead, what would you leave people with? Well, thank you for the opportunity. And I want to say ditto to what Anna Rupa said, because that was brilliantly and beautifully stated. So thank you for sharing. I took a lot of notes. Um, and I would also leave with folks, um, now's an opportunity for us all to inspire someone to take our places when we're gone. I don't know many superintendents who are surviving this pandemic as far as staying in the role. And very few are surviving it and at the same time talking about being anti-racist organizations or cultivating cultures of love or eradicating inequities. So there are too few of us and those of us who are left won't make it much longer from my perspective <laughs> because the resistance is fierce. But what I hope we've done is inspired someone to take our places when we're gone because our industry is at a pivotal point right now. If we do not do some things significantly different, um, the, the emerging technologies, um, other entities will take over what we do. So that's not to scare anyone. I'm hoping that is to inspire folks to pay attention and get busy, um, get, get uncomfortable. Um, we have much work to do in a short order. I am truly honored to have both of you on such busy days um, join me to spend some time on the show. I think people are going to get I hope uh, at least a fraction as much as I've gotten out of the conversation with you both. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark, for facilitating a rich conversation. We don't get to have these often, so thank you. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.